Hey everyone, this is Graham from Guru Focus. If you haven't met me already, I run our value investing live series on YouTube. The podcast you're about to listen to was originally recorded live in front of an audience, so our guests may make references to charts and PowerPoint slides that you won't be able to see here. If you want to check out their full presentation, including those slides, or join our next live stream, click on the link down in the description. Now back to the podcast. All right. Welcome, everyone, to Value Investing Live. I am pleased to welcome our guest this week, James Fletcher. James is the founder of Ethos Investment Management and was previously the director and portfolio manager of the EM Small and Mid-Cap Equity Strategy at APG Asset Management, where he managed about $1.1 billion in assets there. As always, for those of you out in the audience, please say hi to us over there in the chat. Let us know where you're viewing from. We do love seeing those international audience members joining us, and we do appreciate all of you taking the time out of your day to come hang out with us. As always, do please feel free to post those questions and comments throughout the presentation as we go along today. And without anything further from me, I'm going to go ahead and hand things over to James, and we can jump into the presentation. Well, thank you, Graham, and thank you, Charlie, and the whole Guru Focus uh, investment community. Um, really, really appreciate the time. It's an honor to be here and love all that you do for the value investing community um, and some of my heroes and, and my examples in the investment industry have been on Guru Focus Live, so it's an honor to be here. Um, a couple of Excuse me. A couple of uh, items on the agenda today. I want to add as much value as I can to the community. So um, I'll give a brief background of of my background in the firm of Ethos Investment Management, how we look at stocks. Then we'll talk about um, emerging markets is always a question. China, India, Latin America, Southeast Asia, um, what our views are, where we see the markets. and then I want to give you as much value as I can. So I'll, I'll talk about a stock that we think is an attractive long-term investment. Um, I'll talk about an ESG engagement example, which is nice information services. And then happy to open it up to Q&A and make this as valuable as I can for, for all of you listening. So just, just a brief background. Um, I recently launched Ethos Investment Management, my own fund. Um, in um, beginning of January 2022. Uh, we're launching with $100 million of, of committed capital from some exceptional seed investors in the US, Hong Kong, Japan, and Australia. So such an honor to um, get started and um, we, we're growing quickly. So very high demand. Um, it's uh, previously, as, as Graham mentioned, I was I was managing uh, the emerging market small mid cap fund at APG Asset Management, so we were running 1.1 billion dollars. Um, you know, how have we been able to um, you know start off with 100 million dollars plus and and some great institutional clients? I think I think the whole world now is talking about ESG and sustainability. But then the big question is, does ESG impact returns? Do I have to sacrifice long-term returns uh, to invest in ESG? And um, I've been fortunate to invest with some great funds over the years that take a very high quality value investing long-term type approach. Um, And over the past five years at APG, which is from Netherlands, which is one of the largest um, ESG investors in the world, 
we, we built an ESG scorecard system and we engaged with companies to help them improve on the ESG side. So, you know, always our pillars of long-term focus, quality investing, we added ESG to this and we found that it actually added to our, our returns, both through the identification of great businesses, but also the ability to engage, consult and partner with with families and help them improve their board structures, their pay structure, their and their ESG disclosures and metrics. So I'm happy to talk about that today. Um, we're 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 fo- we're concentrated portfolio. We focus on the best 30 to 50 ideas in emerging markets, and um, I have a 17 tra- 17 year track record of uh, investing in emerging markets. It's been my bread and butter and passion. Um, for my whole professional career. Maybe just quickly on emerging markets. Um, So, you know, these are 18 different countries that we invest in, the largest being China, India, um, Korea, and Taiwan. Um, Whereas developed markets have seen the amount of companies listed on the exchange in decline over the past decade, um, emerging markets have seen an explosion of new companies that are investable. I think this is a really positive indicator for you know investors that like large opportunity sets. So if you look at consumer discretionary healthcare IT sectors, from 2009 to 2019, um, more than tripled the amount of companies that we would say are investable in sort of the what we would call the structural growth sectors of consumer healthcare, IT and internet where where you can get structural growth. So so you know some of the headline numbers in emerging markets and in the index level, they may be misleading because that includes a lot of old economy businesses, state-owned banks, oil companies. But what we found is if you focus on structural growth sectors, there's actually strong secular tailwinds, driving earnings growth and driving long-term returns. Um, so we, you know, we find this as a very attractive um, asset class. And what we also find is that there's been significant derating. So we're able to buy EM at a 40% discount to what we would buy an equivalent business in, emer- in developed markets. Um, we focus on small mid cap. Um, ever since 2011, I have just been passionate about small cap emerging markets. Um, we think that this is a you know, really one of the last frontiers of inefficient market, very little analyst sell side coverage, and 98% of the investable EM universe goes towards large cap. So according to Evestment. So we find this as a one of the really last frontiers of inefficient market. Um, and so we're finding great quality businesses that are less covered by sell side, less owned by institutional investors. And as a result, um, we can buy at significant discounts to what we would buy in developed markets. Um, so generally, our, our portfolio is diversified across emerging markets. Um, you can see our China exposure is 20%, which is above the small mid cap index, but below the large cap index of China exposure. Um, Currently, we're overweight Taiwan and India. 
Um, India has been a very strong performer during 2021. Um, we're actually uh, trimming some of our positions there, not because we don't think they're great long-term businesses, but because in some cases, valuations have got ahead of fundamentals and we're just getting less expected returns. Um, uh, Taiwan is a market that we like. We find a lot of um, great businesses with great management teams, good dividend payouts, good valuations, and exposure into Asia and China. So um, we actually like Taiwan quite a bit. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, China, maybe to present, to, to get ahead of the question on China, I think China's been an underperformer um, for the past year. I think we get a lot of questions of worries about regulatory risk. How do we invest in China? Is China uninvestable? Um, you know, we approach China as, as a very complex market with a lot of inherent risks. And to be honest, our success rate of finding companies that meet our bar of quality and ESG are lower in China than in other markets. Um, that being said, if you're on the right side of, you know, President Xi's common prosperity goals, if you're on the right side of regulatory risk and environmental trends, if you're on the right side of data privacy and, um, and, and, and common prosperity, we actually find some very strong business models in China that we have high conviction will be 10 to 20 year compounders at very reasonable prices. And, and I'll present one today, but um, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, we're careful on China, but it's been one of the strongest return generators for us over the past decade, and we would expect it to continue to do so over the decades to come. Um, okay, so let's let's dive into a stock idea. <clears throat> so I, I pose the question to our viewers, what if you had the chance to buy Intertech or SGS back in 2002, so 20 years ago, or Bureau Veritas? Um, you can see in the in the chart below these businesses have compounded at about 16% annualized US dollar returns primarily driven by structural earnings growth and great fundamentals um, whereas you know the MSCI world index has delivered about 9% so nearly double the returns of the index what makes these businesses such great long-term compounders there's very strong moats in IP and brand and high switching costs the industry of testing and inspection services has been growing double GDP. Um, market consolidation has been one of the key factors of success in a lot of the incumbents. So it favors incumbents that have a strong brand and are able to add on additional verticals and geographies. And so if you look at, you know, SGS Intertech have been phenomenal at adding on successful bolt-on acquisitions. And then it's a one-stop shop for brand and that badge of quality when you're certifying a product's quality becomes crucial. So once you develop that, that badge of quality in the one-stop shop, um, the incumbent is very strong and you know, delivers that sort of wide moat structural growth. Um, so what if you had had the chance to buy these 20 years ago, they would have been phenomenal investments. And we think we found the next SGS, and this is a company called Center Testing International. So this is the largest TIC company in uh, China, the, the domestic leader. 
Um, they have 1% market share of the overall TIC market, but they're a clear market leader um, in the life sciences segment, which is their, their core segment. They're also diversified across uh, industrial, trade security, and consumer testing, some of the verticals that have the highest barriers to entry. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they're also two to three times bigger than their number two and number three competitors. Um, so very clear uh, lead on the domestic market. Management team is difficult to find a management team like this in China. So the Wang Fang family um, are the founders, very well-regarded family. Um, and what they did is they brought in uh, CEO, Mr. Shen Tu, in 2018, Mr. Shen Tu was formerly the CEO of SGS China. He's 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 well he's regarded as the best CEO and management of in the TIC industry in China. They brought him, incentivized him well, and ever since he joined Center Testing International, the momentum has just picked up. So you've seen margins expand, you've seen bolt-on acquisitions expand. And um, they have a five-year um, earnings CAGR of 26%, very strong free cash flow. Um, why do we like the market? So why do we think this is you know, the SGS 20 years ago? If you look at the TIC market in the bottom right here, TIC market uh, size to GDP is 0.35% in China. It's been growing double digits, but it's still way below the global average of 2.5%. So, so we think this is a 10 to 20 year, multi-decade um, growth potential of the industry. It's being driven by increasing disposable income, tightening industry regulation, and the emergence of new economies like 5G, NEV, chips, more focus on environmental um, disclosures and quality and product safety, to be honest. Um, we think this business is re recession resistant, which we'll talk about um, in a future slides. Um, you know, long-term secular growth. Um, so we'll just skip past this. Um, and in that double digit, you know, long-term secular growth, the question is, okay, who will be the leader? Who will be the market consolidator? Over the past six years, you see CTI has gained market share significantly above peers. Uh, one of the reasons is that they invest so heavily in R&D. So they have very high gross profit margins, but then they take that and they invest in R&D and Salesforce way above their peers. It's worth mentioning also that GRG testing and CBM are state-owned businesses. They tend to focus on government-linked models and CTI is privately owned and just very well regarded. So we think they have a clear market lead relative to their closest domestic competitors. Very strong track record of, of M&A and bolt-on acquisitions already. Um, and so we see clear sort of growth of 20% CAGR on the top line for the next, next three to five years. And that would put them at about 1.8% market share in the industry, which is still very low by global standards. So, so a lot of potential growth potential ahead. Um, as we talked about before, these business models are free cash flow generative, they're cash generation machines, recession resistant. So CTI grew revenue 30% during the financial crisis, 27, 19% during 08, during 18, 19, during the trade wars, 
and 12% during the COVID-19 pandemic and free cash flow positive every year. Um, so we see, we see very strong numbers, profitability and business model. Best in class management team, we've done channel checks, we've talked to suppliers, we've talked to competitors, and they all speak incredibly highly of the management team, especially Mr. Shentu, who's just known as, as, as the best manager in China in the TIC industry. Um, we, do, we do an ESG scorecard on all of our businesses that we invest in, focused on governance and management quality. A couple things that stand out here is they've been very strong on capital allocation, on margin expansion. Um, yeah, best-in-class CEO and privately owned family-run business. Mr. Fong is still chair of the board. They have an audit committee. Um, and then, like we talked about before, this culture of innovation where they spend 9% of their revenues annually, and they're more than the number two and number three player combined in terms of what they plow back into R&D. So um, that gives them a significant culture of innovation and an advantage over their peers. Um, very good employee diversity, which is also, which is also unusual. Very good disclosures. And this business, so investing in any company in China, you have to ask, what is the regulatory risk? What is the, what is, is this in line with common prosperity? Does this help, you know, low income as much as it helps high income? Um, and the TIC business, especially a business like CTI, they have speciality in environmental testing and quality of products that all you know, consumers in China are eating and using for pharmaceuticals. And so this is highly in line with President Xi's priorities, not to mention the push of favoring local domestic champions in China at the expense of multinationals. So, so we would expect CTI to gain market share at the expense of SGS and Intertech because of you know, the focus on promoting domestic champions, especially ones that have strong brand and credibility like, like CTI does. Um, we have a five-year target price. Um, this is the art of investing, um, triangulating uh, the value through multiple ways of EBD, EBITDA, PE, DCF. Um, all of these factors are indicating that on a five-year basis, we should be um, at double-digit returns in US dollars. Um, and we actually think we're being pretty conservative on our multiples, on our expected growth numbers. Um, this is a business that's, that's trading at sub 50 times current earnings, um, but delivering 23% earnings growth, significantly above their global competitors. So they're trading about in line with global peers, whereas they're delivering about three times the earnings growth and similar profitability and returns on invested capital. So we see, we see you know, very strong potential for five, 10 years plus of double digit um, earnings growth and cash flow growth from, from CTI. So you know, no investment comes without risk. So adverse publicity brand is crucial for the TIC industry. So any, any adverse publicity regarding quality issues that they were tested, non-compliance of standards would cause significant damage. Um, CTI has a clean track record, whereas their peers, their competitors have actually had one or two issues. So we actually see, and how much they invest in R&D, um, coming from SGS management teams, we actually see 
you know, this is a pretty low risk, but it is a risk you need to monitor in this sector. Um, and then M&A uncertainty in any, in any consolidation, you know, story business, um, this will always be a risk. Um, but like I said, in CTI's case, they've been, they've been very uh, well managed, um, bolt on acquisitions in high end, high barriers to entry verticals. Um, they seem to be following the successful playbook of, of the global peers in the M&A. So, so we're actually pretty confident there as well, but those are the, those are the two risks to take into account. So that's, that's an idea in China. I hope it gives you an idea of how you can invest in China, but still be on the right side of common prosperity goals, of ESG, of environmental trends, but still have high conviction in very well-managed business and what we think is a best-in-class global uh, business model like a CTI. Um, second thing, second, I'll give you one more stock and an engagement example. So Nice Information Services is a company in Korea. Um, they are the largest credit information company in Korea with 72% market share. So they're, they're the they're the TransUnion or Experian or Equifax of Korea, um, which, as we know, is a very high barriers to entry business, wide moat business model. Um, while at APG, we invested in NiceInfo. We um, met with the company in July 2017, um, had multiple meetings. It was a very high quality business. But at the time, it had no, no broker coverage. It was a $350 million market cap company. Um, it had very little institutional ownership. Um, we met with their CFO and we found it to be just a phenomenally run business that was completely undiscovered by the market. Um, following our investment and um, you know, extensive due diligence and engagement efforts, um, we, we helped them, um, we presented the ESG scorecard to them. We helped them improve their investor communications. We helped them improve their uh, reporting. We, we, we suggested um, succession um, uh, plans for the CEO, increasing their dividend payout ratio and increasing independent board members. Um, since since our efforts with Nice Info, the, the stock has re-rated dramatically. So we we when we met with a company in 2017, uh, the stock was trading about 13 times price to earnings ratio compared to global peers at 30 times price to earnings ratio, and very similar double-digit um, you know growth and high returns on invested capital. Um, we see a lot of value in being able to engage with some of these small cap companies and helping them re-rate through that engagement process. So in Nice Info's case, um, they were actually um, picked up coverage by, by Goldman Sachs, by Citigroup, by Macquarie, and attended investor conferences, increased their payout ratio, and have benefited phenomenally from you know, that engagement process. We, we still think this is a long-term buy and hold. Um, it's one of, one of the rare Korean uh, families, uh, the Kim family that, that is, engages with minority investors. They have a great track record of capital allocation. Um, the MyData uh, regulatory framework 
has basically allowed NiceInfo to sell the credit score data to third parties. So recommend insurance products or, um, or credit uh, products to customers when they're searching for their credit scores. Um, this, as we know in developed markets, has proved to be, it's about 25% of revenue of Experian TransUnion, and it's only about 6% of revenue for nice info. So this regulation that just passed in the past two years has long-term potential to, to um, add to revenue growth. And this is a very high operating leverage business. So um, that, that, that revenue growth is magnified two to three X in earnings growth and operating leverage. So because they're monetizing their existing data uh, better, um, more customers. So, so we see a lot of upside in nice info as well, um, even after the re-rating and the subsequent outperformance after, after we purchased it. Um, this, is, this is the presentation that I had planned. Um, so I hope that gives you an idea. So we're looking for great quality businesses with wide moats. Um, we take a private equity style to investing in emerging markets. And, you know, I actually think this is one of the most attractive times to be looking at emerging markets, given the uh, discount to developed markets. Um, this is still an immature asset class, which, which we find opportunities in. And um, we, we find value in the ESG analysis, in the company culture analysis, um, in the impact on society, and um, and it's uh, it's why we're launching Ethos Investment Management and why we're seeing good demand from clients. So with that, Graham, I'll open it up to questions from the users. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. Well, we do have a couple of questions built up here. And I'm sure more will roll in as we go through things. Uh, first one uh, looks like coming in from FewTrack. Um, and he's asking, in one of your slides, uh, you showed investments in South Africa. Uh, he wants to know, uh, multi-part question here, um, what caught your eye there? What made you decide to jump into South Africa? Um, are there any specific companies you're looking at? And then from there, how do you de deal with the decline of the czar over there? Yeah, great, great question. So South Africa has been part of the Emerging Market Index for my whole career, so 17 years. So I've been traveling to South Africa every year for 17 years. Um, when you meet South African companies, I think you're um, automatically very impressed. So these are some of the top management teams within our emerging market universe. Many of them educated in London um, and they sort of disclose well, they manage well, they speak well. Um, and, and as a result, you have some very um, companies focused that earns very high returns on invested capital, um, great company cultures, and you know, great well-managed companies. Um, where South Africa struggles is on the macro side. So as, as the, the questioner alluded to, um, the czar has been weak and it's been a tough currency market. The structural growth in the market has been low given there's high income disparity, high unemployment, and, um, and the government just hasn't been able to get out of the private sector's way. And so there's been um, sluggish growth really for five years plus in South Africa. So 
Um, when we invest in any market, we take into account currency. So we're underwriting every investment that we can expect um, mid-double digit uh, annualized returns in U.S. dollar terms. So in a country like South Africa, where we're you know we're modeling eight to ten percent currency devaluation per year of the czar based on historical trends. What you really need is twenty five percent local currency return to deliver fifteen percent u s dollar return per year um, and so you know where can you find companies that are growing twenty five percent and and giving you that return it's it's not so easy in South Africa. Um, we own a company in South Africa, uh, only one holding um, that is the largest uh, convenience store operator uh, in South Africa. And they had just have a dominant franchise of, of being very strong on, on convenience, but they're also a, a pharmacy. So they, they have in-house pharmacists that they're adding to the in-house pharmacist. They have very strong private label and exclusive brands. And just a wonderfully well-managed company focused on returns on invested capital, but also a, a, a structural growth potential of opening new stores, um, taking market share and adding pharmacists to their chain. So um, yeah, to answer your question, we're relatively cautious on the macro of South Africa, even though there's some of the most wonderfully managed businesses in emerging markets. And so uh, currently I only have one holding in South Africa. Gotcha. Well, moving on from there, um, KC out there, uh, not sure what you're referring to, uh, asking uh, what the stock you invested into is. Uh, we had uh, uh, two, two examples here. Uh, we'll we'll see if Casey wants to clarify that one here uh, later down in the chat. Uh, but Praveen jumping in, um, poking you on India. You said you were kind of pulling things back there. Um, are you seeing any other value opportunities that you might find in the market, or are things starting to kind of grow out of control there? Yeah. So thank you for the question. Um, India is one of my favorite long-term investment markets to invest in a young, dynamic, entrepreneurial population, um, growth, and, and really global expertise in sectors like pharmaceuticals, healthcare, IT, software. I think one of the exciting things in India is that we've finally seen new companies come to market. So we've seen the IPO pipeline robust over the past two years. That's a good sign of access to capital, innovation. You've seen more internet companies, which has always been um, a gap of India. Internet companies, Zomato, Paytm, <laughs> InfoEdge, India Mart um, come to market. And that's, you know, that's, that's very exciting for India. I think, I think where we're, you know, more uh, cautious on India is when we see companies that are growing sort of high single digits um, and our price is 60 times price to earnings ratio, right? Like six times peg ratio is very, <clears throat> excuse me, is, uh, is very hard to justify by any standards. And then you add in, you know, cost of capital is higher in India. So, um, you know, it, it becomes very difficult to, to justify. So, so what we're looking for, so, so that's why, yeah, like I, like I said at the beginning, we're, 
we're, we're trimming some of our positions in India that have rallied very well over the past two years. Some of them are up uh, 50%, 100%. And, um, and some of those return expectations over the long run are even using sort of a five-year average PE, which is generally higher in India than other markets because of the long-term structural growth. Um, we're just a, a little more sensible about sort of valuations. And, you know, I would say, uh, on the other hand, you look at markets like China, Southeast Asia, or even Brazil, which have been um, really hammered over the past 12 months. And here, our bottom-up models are starting to indicate, you know, high double-digit returns or even 20%, you know, CAGR, IRR is expected for the next five years. So it, for us, we're not macro forecasters. We're not trying to time the next cycle and in the market. We, we judge everything from bottom up. And from the bottom up, you know, India is starting to look a little more expensive than some of the other markets. For sure. And uh, looks like uh, Dale, one of our usual viewers, chiming in down at the bottom of things, uh, saying India is looking uh, like a no thank you on their front. Uh, they're, they're seeing a big bubble there. Uh, okay. But do agree that China is looking real good. Um, continuing on, uh, Praveen jumping in again here, um, asking, do you see any value in Russia right now? Um, any interest there? Anything you're looking at? Yeah, good question. Um, so we own one company in Russia. We're, we're, we're very careful of Russia, right? Like when we talked about our regulatory risk framework and our ESG scorecard framework, it honestly makes you know, the majority of Russia uninvestable um, from the regulatory risk side or the governance side. Um, but we do find pockets of great businesses in Russia from time to time. And we actually own one uh, currently. It's a company called headhunter.com. Uh, Headhunter is, we, we like online classifieds in general. These are proven to be wide moat network effect businesses. Headhunter.com is the leading job portal in Russia. Um, they have solid 65% market share, continue to gain market share versus peers. The flywheel, as they say, is spinning where they're continuing to gain traffic share uh, from their smaller competitors. And they also are priced at an average, you know, dollar per listing of $350 uh, per listing. This is compared to $1,200 in India and um, $3,000 to $4,000 globally. So, so we see tremendous pricing power from that business over the long run and, and dominant share as, as online uh, hiring takes share away from offline headhunter hiring, which is you know five times, 10 times more expensive than, than an online hire. So um, that is a business that and, and is very well managed. Mikhail, the CEO, is one of the top, I would say, online classified CEOs in the world. Um, we were conscious of Russia risk, conscious of sovereign risk, conscious of geopolitical risk. Um, but, you know, headhunter.com has sold off at the beginning of this year, partly due to risks of Kazakhstan and, and the protests and the uprising there. And, and also the risks of Ukraine. Um, we think it's a lot due to headline risk and investors just selling Russia. Kazakhstan is 2% of revenues, so it's very small. And um, the impact on Headhunter's business will be 
um, negligible from, from any potential sanction. So at this point, it, it is looking oversold. It's looking quite attractive for what we think is a multi-decade compounder. Gotcha. And uh, looks like I missed one uh, clarification down a little bit further from Pravina as well, um, asking that that South African holding um, the convenience store. Just wanting to know uh, name slash ticker for it, just because I know he'll want to go look it up after this. Yeah, so it's uh, Clicks, um, Clicks Group. Um, and yeah, I mean, they've been a very strong multi-decade performer, and we expect them to continue to be a multi-decade performer. Definitely. And uh, looks like Barry's chiming in here, uh, looking to, to push you out of the, the small and, and mid caps, um, poking you for your view on uh, the ever popular Alibaba over in uh, China, <laughs> if you have any thoughts on it there. Yeah, so um, I don't have a professional view on Alibaba because I'm solely focused on small mid cap where we still see um, a big gap in terms of inefficiency and a lot of structural growth in, in, in that universe. Um, you know, what, what I will tell you is we, we became cautious on Jack Ma linked businesses last year. Um, after the fiasco of Ant Financial's IPO and some of what we were hearing from the related Alibaba owned businesses, um, we were starting to hear that all of them were getting sort of regulatory inqu inquiries, pressure, questions. Um, there's a company called Balzoon that um, is, is minority owned by Alibaba, but they are um, they, they provide marketing services to multinationals like Nike selling on on the Alibaba platforms in China. Um, we started to get some negative read-throughs from what we were hearing from businesses like Balzoon. And, um, and so late last year, we, we were pretty uh, pessimistic on most uh, Alibaba-owned businesses. Um, fortunately, that turned out to be the right decision. Um, do these businesses look oversold at this point? Probably. Um, they've sold off quite a bit, but, but you know, we need to still be careful on the governance side. Like, like I said before, um, China is an enormous market. There's, 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 um, and we need to be careful there. So, you know, there's lots of great companies in China where we don't have to take as much governance risk as we may have to take on a Jack Ma linked business. So I'd be a little more cautious on Alibaba because of that. Um, I do love the business model and I do love their competitive advantage long-term, but you know, I think there's businesses that have less governance risk that still can generate sort of very high uh, returns in the future in China. Gotcha. So dodged a bullet a little bit there, but not necessarily ready to, to jump in there if, if I'm hearing yeah, it correctly. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And looks like uh, go a little bit um, to... Uh, what we'll call uh, the emerging emerging markets, um, sure. frontier markets, as uh, has been coined uh, by one of our past guests, Kevin Carter. Um, Praveen wants to know: Do you have any investments here? Or are you interested in it? Would you like to explore there? Is it something you're considering? Yeah, frontier's been an interesting one. As I said, I've done emerging markets for 17 years. Um, and really, there were a lot of funds launching Frontier in the early 2010s, 11s, 12s. 
Um, and that's where Frontier really got hot. So Africa, some of the Southeast Asia, uh, like Vietnam, Bangladesh. Um, uh, but the problem with Frontier was at the time, the index was very heavily weighted toward the Middle East, like Kuwait was the largest index. And then, and then as you know, many of the viewers know, Nigeria was one of the largest markets and that's been turned out to be a real underperformer. Africa in general has been tough to sort of generate strong US dollar um, earnings growth. And so, um, you know, I've seen sort of Frontier go from very hot uh, to very cold. And, and I'd say now it's still very cold, which, you know, as a long-term investor is an opportunity, right? I think there are companies in Frontier like uh, Vietnam, uh, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, um, some in Africa that, that, that do look to have um, some of the aspects of great businesses, long-term compounders. Um, our, current, our, core, our current portfolio, we're focused on emerging markets. So, so we don't invest in the frontier. Um, so the question would be, you know, would we invest in frontier in the future? And, and we would need to see you know, the ability to build a, you know, high conviction portfolio of 40 stocks that we think is a compelling offering to clients. I think there are a handful of countries that look interesting, um, but there's also a lot of risks there. So you need to be compensated for the lower liquidity, higher geopolitical risk, higher currency risk. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, um, Frontier has gone from very hot to very cold, and now you start to see markets like Vietnam um, really catch fire. And I think that's great. So we'll continue to monitor it. For sure. So uh, there's like Dale chiming in down at the bottom, um, asking specifically there on Africa, North Africa, Morocco. Sounds like you're keeping an eye out, but not necessarily ready to dive in yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of I've spent a lot of time in Africa over my career. Nigeria, South Africa, Namibia, Kenya. You find wonderfully run management teams, great long-term business models. The macro tends to get in the way, corruption, governance gets in the way, and oftentimes you're not compensated for the higher risks. Um but it, you know, it's certainly certainly markets that we keep our eyes on. For sure. And it looks like Rafael's jumping in here uh, with a question, uh, poking on another hot topic, um, and and he's asking in a Fed interest rate increase environment where the U.S. dollar is getting stronger against these emerging currencies, do you you see any high quality U.S. companies with big moats and any names here that you guys have been watching um, within the U.S. that have caught your eye recently? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I focus professionally on emerging markets, small mid cap. Um, and so our fund is solely dedicated to emerging markets, small mid cap, where we see this is very fertile ground for alpha and inefficient markets and great long-term compounders. Um, but personally, um, yeah, I mean, US and Europe have some of the strongest business models in the world. I don't think anyone's doubting that. And I find a lot of investments that I invest in personally from the US side. Um, 
we we spend a lot of time benchmarking EM com- companies against uh, developed market companies. So you know we talked about nice information services earlier. You know we spent weeks and weeks analyzing what made Experian and TransUnion and Equifax such great businesses over the long term. Um, we talked about center testing international. We spent weeks and weeks understanding. SGS and Intertech and, you know, what makes these businesses great and what likely will continue to make those businesses great. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many great wide moat, wonderful businesses in the U.S. Um, what we would just argue is that they're fairly well known at this point. Uh, a lot of them are pretty, pretty heftily priced. Um, and we can go buy those same businesses you know, ten that are that are ten years behind their developed market peers um, at significant discounts, and so we see a lot of opportunity in emerging markets. But personally, you know, I invest in a lot of those businesses like you know SGS or like you know Experian um, in my personal portfolio. For sure. And looking down, uh, looks like we got Praveen. Uh, jumping in down here at the bottom again uh, with a great question, uh, asking you to talk about uh, your biggest mistakes and lessons learned uh, throughout <laughs> your, your history of investing. Oh, that's a great question. So, um, you know, if you can get a 60% hit rate in, in investing, then you're, you're a genius, right? So um, I think one of the important things to remember is that at least 40% of the time you will have mistakes. Um, learn from those mistakes, cut your losses, and um, and then move forward. Um, some of some of the mistakes we've made um, in companies in Brazil, in India, in China, I would say the most common theme is, and this is you know in small cap emerging markets, is when you find companies that are cash generative, that are family run businesses but have very high quality businesses and generate a lot of cash. Um, the, the best game plan to be would be is to use that cash wisely, invest in high return on invested capital projects, and over time, turn that management over to professionally management teams. Um, and our biggest mistakes have been in uh, families that have a very difficult time you know, turning it over to professionally run businesses. We've seen this in companies we've invested in in India and in, in Brazil. Um, we've seen the most common reason for mistakes that we've seen is bad capital allocation. Uh, normally we get the quality right, um, but then they generate all this cash and what do they do? They go do acquisitions overseas or non-core acquisitions or, you know, pay the family somehow through a related party transaction. And, uh, you know, then we have to divest and then it's not investable for us. So um, those, those tend to be the biggest mistakes. Um, I think as some of the other speakers have said, there's also the mistakes of, of omission. So the ones you miss are often the, the biggest mistakes. And, and, you know, these are mistakes of being too um, stingy on price and not buying just a very high quality long-term business and trying to buy the second tier at a 10% uh, discount. 
Um, what I found in my career is it's almost always better to buy the best um, if, if this is going to surprise you on the upside and has long-term potential. So we've missed oh, so, so many ideas because we just didn't want to pay up for it or we just weren't fast enough. And, um, and so, yeah, the biggest, the biggest ones have been uh, errors of omission, I'd say, of stocks that we didn't buy. For sure. And just a, a question out of curiosity here, you, you hit on the note of speed. Do you feel like emerging markets, you, you see things, those opportunities come and go at a much faster rate um, than some of the you know, new companies we're seeing here? Obviously, you know, the IPO, SPAC merger, boom thing got pretty crazy here in the U.S. and everybody wanted to get on that bandwagon. Is there, I guess, similar trends that you see over in these other markets that people might have missed? Yeah, I, I think in general terms, the speed uh, trend is similar in emerging markets as we've seen in developed markets. So when we find these valuation mismatches like nice info trading at 13 times earnings, they tend to be um, discovered quicker. So, you know, 10 years ago, you know, it may be six months or even years before the market was able to meet the company, do the due diligence and unlock that, that you know, re-rating potential or that discount. Um, today, it's, you know, matters of weeks and months. Um, there's, there's just more investors in general. Uh, capital's cheap and interest rates are low. And so, and, and growth is scarce. And so when you find, you know, great uh, businesses that have long-term structural growth, then they tend to be, um, everything's quicker. So, so I think everything is quicker in general. Um, emerging market small cap, like I said, though, we is still, is still years behind developed markets. So on average, our companies have two analysts that cover it. Uh, low broker coverage, low institutional ownership. So we are able to find the companies, especially sub, you know, 2 billion market cap in, you know, in Southeast Asia, in China, in India, where there may be 4,000 companies listed in those countries. We're still able to find some gems that, that um, you know, if they were trading in, in on the Russell 3000, they would be snatched up, you know, very quickly. So so it's we still find inefficiencies in the market, but it, I'd say it's much quicker today than it was than it was ten years ago. For sure, and looks like you hit there. Uh, Praveen was also asking about Southeast Asia. You hit on it a little bit there. Uh, obviously, you you've been keeping an eye on things pretty much in sure. in any realm that you uh, you know that plays into your strengths there. Sure. Yeah, Southeast Asia is is a great opportunity for long-term compounders as well. So you have countries like Indonesia, uh, Philippines, Malaysia, Thailand, which um, have solid demographics, long-term growth. These are innovative countries. And um, you see companies like C-Limited and Grab, which are able to, in some ways, springboard business models in developed markets and add bolt-on acquisitions of payments and gaming. Um, and so we're seeing, when we visit Southeast Asia, we're seeing innovation, access to capital, new business models emerging. So we think it's an exciting time to be investing there. For sure. 
And looks like Raphael's jumping in here again, uh, saying Turkey's gone through a rough patch with currency yeah, sure. and their economy. Um, do you see, a, I guess you could call it a bottom there, or any promising prospects over on that front? Yeah, great question. So Turkey's tough, um, obviously. Um, we we have political concerns. We have currency concerns. We have regulatory concerns. Um, uh, we only own one company in Turkey. Um, it's a small software company. Um, it's a small cap company, but they're the market leader in ERP software. It's a company called Logo Yazilim. Um, and Logo is um, similar to an SAP or Oracle, where they have the majority of their revenue in maintenance revenue, and that maintenance revenue is priced through automatically in a formula with inflation. So in any country that has inflation um, risks like Turkey, um, we need pricing power, absolutely, you know, bar full stop. And so we found one business which can automatically price through their prices, has long-term structural growth in, in IT penetration is low in Turkey and is one of the best management teams in Turkey, we believe. So, so we're cautious on Turkey. We'd be very cautious taking macroeconomic or FX risk unless the business has very strong pricing power. Gotcha. And Praveen coming in here, uh, another great question, asking you, uh, how do you go about finding ideas? What's the process look like there? Yeah, so it's all your typical ways of attending investor conferences, uh, we meet hundreds of companies a year. We run quantitative screens looking for qualitative factors. Um, but I would say the biggest way that we find our investments is we follow business models. Like, like I talked about before, we study business models. We look at what Morningstar rates as wide moat business models in developed markets. Um, and we become experts in about 30 to 40 proven benchmarked um, exceptional business models um, that are high quality and have the potential for long-term structural growth, like online classifieds, like credit rating agencies. Um, and then we, we scour the globe to find these businesses. We, we follow the business model. Um, we don't take cyclical risk. We don't want to be investing in commodative businesses, um, businesses where we have to predict, you know, the oil price for the stock to work out. We want long-term structural growth, but we want to be able to benchmark it globally and feel very comfortable that this is the Experian of Korea, or this is the, you know, jobs portal of Russia, so that we can have very strong confidence of what the business and the industry will look like five to 10 years in the future. Um, we don't need to swing at every pitch, as Buffett says. Um, we just need to stick within our circle of competence of 30 to 40 proven businesses and emerging markets. And if we get the management and the governance right and the ESG, um, then our success rate is much higher. Definitely. Well, it looks like we are getting towards the end of things here, and I'll go ahead and uh, hark back. It looks like there is some interest uh, from our audience. We do have plenty of international viewers here. They are asking, can they invest in your fund from outside of the U.S.? They are interested in getting involved in it there. 
Yeah, so, um, and, and that's a great question. So um, I, I am happy to interact with the community. So I'm active on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out and happy to, happy to connect. Um, we, you can connect um, on ethos, contact at ethosinvest.com. Um, for the fund, we're currently um, launching it just for institutional allocators. So, so in our founder share class, which is which offers fee discounts for large family offices and institutional allocators. Um, that'll be the first couple hundred million dollars of investments, and and that has a one million uh, minimum. Um, we have it's a typical hedge fund structure, so we have an offshore fund um, through Cayman and an onshore fund through Delaware. Um, after that, we we likely will be open for uh, lower ticket investors. Um, there, there is some potential of launching a mutual fund in the future, um, but um, yeah, currently we're focused on institutional and family offices with with the one million uh, minimum ticket. For sure. Well, there you go, folks. Do please feel free to reach out. Hit James up on the socials there. Like he said, he'll be happy to interact with you. At this point in time, James, looks like that is going to round out the questions that we do have from the audience. Thank you so much for coming on, joining us today, bringing that great presentation, some of those great case studies there, and jumping in and taking all these questions from our audience. No, thank you. And thanks to the audience. Great questions, everyone. And what an honor to be on. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Value Investing Live. If you haven't joined one of our live streams before, check us out on YouTube and register for the events on gurufocus.com. If it's your first time hearing of us, click the link in the bio for a free 7-day trial of Guru Focus where you can test out all of our great tools and features. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.